Blog Talk Radio. to the Perkins Platform. Uh, This is a monthly solutions-oriented talk radio show, and each month we dedicate 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, This month, our guest is Dr. Amy Stewart-Wells, who is an expert on uh, uh, talking about um, desegregation and um, uh, sociology and Education. She's a professor of sociology and education and the director of the Center for Understanding Race and Education. So uh, welcome, Amy. Thank you. So to our Glad faithful... To yeah, thank you for coming. Um, <laughs> to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being part of our family of over 5,000 listeners per month. And to our new listeners, we're glad to have you and glad you've joined us. So, uh, Amy, we're going to just jump right in. I'm I'm really uh, excited to have you um, on. And uh, listeners know we've had a few people over the last year. And this this, uh, issue that has resurfaced in leadership, and maybe some would argue that it never went away, is about diversity, both cultural and racial diversity in classrooms. But before we get into this uh, report that uh, um, you you and some of your colleagues wrote uh, this year, um, I'd like to hear just a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing at the Center for Understanding Race and Education. Sure. Well, we, have, we started the center several years ago, and it's been, you know, my, my focus has been mainly historically doing the research on issues of race and education. So school desegregation plans and policies, how those overlap and intersect with school choice policies, how that affects racial patterns of racial segregation and inequality. Um, so we've done a lot of work in the last few years looking at those issues on Long Island, which was which is a very... Um, Interesting. We from focused area. We focus mainly on Nassau County on Long Island, which is the closest county to New York City. Um, there's 56 school districts um, in a very small geographical area, so it's a very fragmented and divided um, part of New York State. And it's very racially diverse if you take it in the aggregate, but if you look at um, within the school district boundaries, it's very segregated. So we did a big project on that. We looked at um, everything from property values across the district boundaries and these patterns of segregation. And then we're actually studying patterns of resegregation because we also know, having studied housing policy, how the federal government has made this made this big push, obviously beginning in the 1990s, for home ownership among lower income families, which then has has had an impact on particularly intervening suburban communities and um, say more working class, lower middle class suburban communities. And so those communities have changed very quickly. Some of them, you know, going back longer than that, but particularly in the last 20 years on Long Island. And so what happens when families of color Um, move out of New York City and into those inner ring suburbs, we wanted to study how that process plays out in current, you know, um, the current context and 
really found patterns of resegregation there in terms of white flight all over again from the very communities that whites had fled to after World War II. So how did that pattern play out and what was the role of the schools? That was our big study there. Um, and we learned a lot about, you know, possible ways in which uh, these communities could stabilize racially and kind of create more stable and successful public schools and communities that could be diverse um, but not in this process of change and, and instability and, and white flight. Um, and, and we also learned a lot about how the fragmentation of that county by small little districts was, was a major part of that problem. So then we turned our focus to, um, to New York City where there's massive gentrification going on. So it's kind of this metro migration pattern where we're seeing more people of color, more low-income people being pushed out or moving out of the city to the suburbs and then this influx of white, more affluent people, uh, particularly younger adults who grew up in suburbs, now moving back into the very neighborhoods that their grandparents fled after World War II. So mm -hmm. we call that metro migration patterns. And so we're seeing changing demographics on both sides of the urban-suburban boundary and trying to understand the relationship between the housing patterns and the public schools. And really questioning through all that, how do we stabilize communities that are in, yet again in a process of racialized change? So um, that has led to the most recent project within, actually two more recent projects within the Center for Understanding Race and Education. And one of them is called The Public Good. And it's a project um, where we're working with schools, individual schools in New York City and school districts in the suburbs around these issues of race and stabilization. And we're using some research methodology to engage communities, parents, educators, students around these issues, and then strategic communication to start to reframe public education in a way to start to think about diverse schools and communities as good. And public schools in particular, um, which take all students and, um, from those communities as, as strong, important schools in, in terms of preparing students for the 21st century. Um, we're also running this summer, because we don't have enough to do, <laughs> at Teachers College that, that works with the Public Good Project is a summer institute um, on teaching and learning in racially diverse schools. And that's particularly for educators who are working in those contexts um, to learn a lot of issues about both the history of desegregation, what we didn't do properly the first time when we desegregated schools in this country, which was not really pay attention to issues of race and sociocultural issues within schools or focus on curriculum and teaching in diverse schools. So we're starting a, this institute around professional development um, to say this isn't just about putting kids of different races in a building, it's about what happens inside the building. And that's the only way we're going to move forward, we think, with these issues to stabilize diverse schools and to frame those schools and what they're doing as as good for all kids and beneficial to our society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, I talked with a lot of my colleagues um, who are school board members and city officials talking about what you, you just described um, in terms of the, uh, um, the, the reverse migration, if you will, or the, the um, metro migration uh, pattern uh, leaving out of, um, out of the suburbs, coming back into the cities, into these new housing designs with lofts and, and shared housing designs. Very interesting uh, things going on in terms of urban, urban living and urban um, sociology. Um, mm -hmm. one, 
one of the things that I was um, uh, this this report, and for those of you who are listening, uh, we have a link to the report um, on uh, the uh, website. Um, it is um, how um, racial diversity uh, is basically um, summarizing how racially diverse schools and classrooms can benefit all students, um, which is a, a very heated um, uh, conversation in a lot of, of cities um, going on right now. Um, I know a lot of my colleagues that are, as I said, on boards are, have also talked about um, what what is what is happening in the public forum around um, diversity, but also um, seeking ways to constructively have the conversation about the benefits. And so, one of the things that you um, cited in the report about the Coleman report that many of us know uh, is in its 50th year uh, now. Um, this uh, uh, celebrates the 50th year of the Coleman Report. And we're hearing and seeing more and more about um, the benefits and people writing more about the benefits of racially diverse classrooms. So why now? What's going on now in the public arena that makes this uh, a timely report that you, you mm-hmm. felt we need we need something out there like this now. And this your report is dated February ninth, two thousand sixteen. Why now? That's a great question. I, I think there's several factors. One is the changing demographics of the country and particularly the K through twelve population um in public schools today, which is now no longer as we many of us know, no longer majority uh white non Hispanic. So so the, the reality of, of who the public is in our public schools has, has changed dramatically. With, with that, we see this millennial generation of parents coming into the public schools um, with very different racial attitudes than their parents had, um, and more interracial marriages, more openness to living in diverse communities and sending their children to diverse schools, more diverse children in terms of biracial marriages. So. That things are just changing the perception of who we are and who public schools serve, which I think is opening up this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And then on top of that, I think we're just we're kind of coming out of a really 25, 30 year era of you know kind of free market reform movement in in public education that's kind of kind of played itself out, and I think we're experiencing a lot of fatigue around it that brought us the accountability movement. Nothing we couldn't measure with a test was of value, you know, so that's kind of the way public schools have been framed, which has led to a narrowing of our curriculum, which goes against a lot of intuition that parents and educators have about, you know, how children should be spending time during the day. Um, And I think we're seeing a backlash against that, um, certainly with the opting out movement, but also this with parents wanting more social-emotional development for their children addressed in schools, wanting more arts, wanting a broader curriculum, um, and educators really resonating with that. And so part of that is just kind of opening up what we think about public schools and what we want them to prepare our children for. And a lot of it, you know, when you look at it, once you get out of college or grad school, you don't do standardized tests anymore. You interact with people, right? And you learn to get along and you learn to cross cultural boundaries. And that's what success is going to look like as an adult. And I think we all know that intuitively, but we've kind of been playing this testing game and this accountability game and thinking about education in just 
too narrow uh, a term. And, and that's not to say that's not to say we don't need to understand if kids can do math and if they can read. We certainly do, and probably test scores should play a role in in all of that. But it's also time to step back and say, what have we been chasing here? Have we been, you know, chasing and redefining schools and children based on their scores? Um, and how can we broaden that a little bit to think about, well, what really do we want these institutions to do in terms of creating the adults of the future, the adults for our democracy? And I think we're starting to really um, broaden our understanding and our, and our just thinking around those issues, both in the micro level with parents and educators frustrated with the anxiety and the stress that the testing system has placed on kids and, and teachers and parents, but also at a more macro level, like we're changing as a society, and this is our challenge for the 21st century. Fascinating. Um, you, you mentioned something that really caught my attention uh, because it was something that also caught my attention in the report. You talked about changing attitudes, and you had a, a, a graph in the report uh, but I remember distinctly something you you told a story about what happened in Louisville, uh, what you mm-hmm. uh, some of the some of the views in Louisville. You want to share a little bit about that? Well, from the report, the, the relationship between the desegregation and the attitudes. Yes. 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 The research on that. Well, the research is actually really strong, not just in Louisville. Um, but in interviews I've done with graduates of desegregated schools, that uh, that having these interracial experiences, even when there's still racial tensions within a school or a community, is ends up being more positive in the long run. And it just makes sense. I mean, it goes back to Gordon Alport's theories, right, in the 1950s around interracial contact leading to, you know, better racial attitudes and, and cross-racial understanding and more empathy. Um, and just the civic engagement piece, the research on that is really powerful. Um, that if you, if you have more exposure to people who are different than you, you come out of these institutions, say public schools or universities, with a stronger commitment to the greater good. And so it leads to greater civic participation and participation in democratic processes in a way that just seems so important right now um, with some of the issues we need to deal with in terms of voice and representation politically. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, the reason I, I mentioned the Louisville case that I thought uh, related to that, that was so interesting, was that uh, you mentioned that um, something that in the 1970s, uh, parents were surveyed in Louisville and about, uh, their, I guess, their preference to making schools more diverse. And, and mm-hmm. something like 98% of them polled were opposed to you know, the, the plan to, to desegregate. Um, but then um, in 2011, no, 2007, I think it was, but somewhere in after 2000, when they were surveyed, it was 89, 89% of them were in favor of mm-hmm. the guidelines that ensured that they were with uh, students with, with uh, diverse backgrounds. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, a lot of people don't think of Kentucky as, as South, certainly with the Southern heritage, um, uh, you know, in terms of the, the sociology there. But I, you know, it just, that was an interesting uh, story for me that, that there was a, that's a big turnaround in, in the way people 
are viewing um, goals of desegregation. What, what do you think, mm-hmm. you know, other than I know you, you mentioned that families are becoming more diverse. Um, uh, is there anything else you think that's happening that you, you would attribute that to, to change? Mm-hmm. Huh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, you know, I, I just, I do think, I, I've written about this, the generation of students who went through desegregation, particularly in the 70s and into the 80s, and I've interviewed a lot of those graduates, and, um, you know, you talk about the silent majority, you know, I know Nixon's used that term and Trump's used that term, but I think there are a lot more people out there who would like to see leadership in our, you know, among policymakers in this country to create more diverse schools and communities to help sustain those schools with policies and programs. Because what I've learned from that research is that people who went through those experiences um, come out of them on the other side with a very different perspective on issues of race and, and, um, and just what life is like on the other side of the color line. And, and more empathy. It's what the quantitative research shows. I've learned through my interviews and, and um, more ethnographic work that that's really true. It changes people's lives forever. Um, and so, and then I, I, so many of those graduates I interviewed said, you know, I, when I was in high school in the late 1970s or 80s and we were at the forefront of desegregation and my, my cohort went through and was, you know, the first generation to, to have this massive desegregation. And we thought we were at the beginning of a major change in this country to really break down the barriers and and segregation. And then we grew up, and they they grew up into adulthood, and now their kids are going to more segregated schools than they went to. So we lost lost that focus, and we lost the leadership in this country, and we lost um, the political will to work on these issues. And I think we're back again. I think we're starting to realize, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, some of the things that have come out around racial profiling and police brutality have really raised awareness um, in communities that weren't aware of how much race still matters and issues of implicit bias. So I think there's kind of a reawakening in this country um, that we have to begin addressing those issues sure. again. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, thank you, and, and one of the uh, other um, aspects of this that is really um, interesting. We I, I mentioned to you before the show that um, Dr. Orfield, who for years was at Harvard at the Civil Rights Project in Harvard, now in at UCLA. Uh, one of the, I guess, the cornerstones of his work has been around busing, um, and um, one one part of our conversation actually dealt with so what do you do when when you have the option of busing children where they're going to be two two and a half hours on a bus to achieve these goals or in some cases where even if you achieve some integration but by and large the communities are racially isolated that they're just not enough schools with other students to diversify. What then? Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's several layers of things. It depends on, too, kind of where we think about the, the boundaries, right? So the, 
you know, as we know in metropolitan areas like like New York, suburban New York, we have tons of little school districts. So, so when we think about the student population, if you actually took Nassau County as a whole, it's about 63% white. The student population K through 12, so and and the and then the nice mix of black and Latino and Asian um, for the other percentage. So overall, that's a very diverse county that actually reflects the demographics of this country right now. Um, and is a little wider than the K-12 population overall. So part of the problem is just where we've drawn the boundary lines to think about the possibility of integration, but there have been several metro areas. There have been eight places across the country where we've done a lot of interdistrict uh, desegregation and efforts to you know, allow border crossing across these boundaries that were man-made and could be you know, erased, but, um, but maybe not in the, in the short term, but could be transcended, certainly, through transportation and student access. So, um, and there are more efforts to do that, you know, and there are efforts to create countywide magnet schools in places like New Jersey. There's some effort to do that in New York with um, with our BOCES, which are our cooperative boards that work across districts. So, um, so there's one thing about the scope of the, of the plan or the program. Um, I don't think we're going to go back to an era of mandatory reassignment. And, in fact, if you look historically, which is what we term busing, um, a lot of students were desegregated through voluntary choice kind of plans. And if you look at the choice programs that were being created in the 80s, whether it was magnet schools or voluntary transfer programs that were part of desegregation, um, that preceded charter schools and a lot of the, the choice plans that we see, voucher plans that we see now, those plans created more racially diverse schools and still provided families with choice. I think it's a little ironic that when the charter school movement developed and, and vouchers and open enrollment plans that were not about creating diversity but about forcing competition within schools, that we didn't remember that, that we had a whole history of, of voluntary desegregation and school choice that preceded any current efforts to create more, you know, competitive kinds of choice in education. So we've used school choice throughout our history. We created segregation academies during the Jim Crow era. Those were schools of choice. So, you know, we've had school choice forever, even though some people think it was invented in the 1990s. But that's not true. We've just used it to accomplish different goals. And if we decide that really our main goal for providing choice is to create more democratic schools, more diverse schools, we could do that again. We've done it before. We know how to do that. Sure, sure. Um, for those of you who may have joined us late, we are having a conversation with Dr. Amy Stewart-Wells, who is the co-author of a report uh, supported by the Century Foundation um, that uh, looks at the benefits of culturally and racially diverse classrooms. Um, one of the other questions I had for you, and maybe uh, you know, you you have an answer about what you're hearing as you go around the country and maybe have conversations with um, community leaders. Um, maybe even some policymakers. I was just wondering what, for you, appears to be most compelling um, uh, as in terms of an argument that is resonating with policymakers. So the people who I, I've I've been in some of those conversations behind closed doors where you know there's a political aspect to this um, and where there are groups of parents, uh, there are groups of 
uh, elected officials who are trying to figure out the best balance for parents and what parents want. Um, and while some people cite the benefits, uh, there are others that talk about the, the aspects of it that take away uh, that, you know, so they might talk about the bus ride. They may talk about uh, disconnected communities. Um, but what for you seems to be the thing that when you, when you mention it, actually appeals to policymakers as an argument for uh, more culturally and racially uh, diverse classrooms? Yeah, that's a good. I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. And there's so many different levels. Like, like if we think about it, at um, I mean, first of all, we think of the harms of segregation. We think of the the single most problematic educational setting is one with high concentration of poor children. Um, so, and the relationship between race and class in this country means that, particularly in urban areas, those are or inner ring suburban areas, those are often children of color. So it's both race and socioeconomic segregation. But the other thing that we're learning, too, is just the, the issues related to concentrated privilege in other contexts of often white and higher income uh, parents and, and students. Um, and just the, the, we, we go, if I, I went, my son is applying to college or applied to college this year, and I went on so many college campus tours and info sessions where all these universities are touting the benefits of their diverse schools and classrooms and how they're very multicultural. They bring students from all over the world and the country and every different racial, ethnic background and, and religion. And, and I'm thinking, you know, knowing what we know about where we are in K-12 education, are we really preparing to And I'm talking about very selective colleges and universities that a lot of parents, particularly affluent parents say that they want their kids to go to. So we really ought to think about the disconnect and whether we're preparing any students for that future if we maintain the level of segregation that we have now. The other thing is just what the research shows, the benefits for all students of being in more diverse classrooms if we're paying attention to these sociocultural issues and the larger context of a, of a more racialized society and the inequality that's embedded in that and trying to work on that and address that within our curriculum and teaching. And then we just learn, see how students from different backgrounds learn deeper, better. They challenge their own assumptions. They challenge their own implicit biases, which actually helps all students moving forward in life. Um, implicit bias also hurts those who hold the bias. It, it creates fears and anxieties in them. Um, mm -hmm. And we know that that has long-term negative outcomes, particularly we've seen in the policing that's been done. So. Uh, so there's benefits, and then there's a more macro level, kind of the societal benefits um, and democratic benefits. And the fact that our biggest challenge in the U.S. as one of the most diverse, racially, ethnically, culturally diverse democracies on the planet is how do we make this work? Because history tells us that there's a problem with that, that the more diverse we are, the less together we are in terms of you know, supporting each other and supporting public policies and programs that help all children. And so... If we don't work, start working on that with this generation in the public schools, like the sense of a public good and a sense of interconnectivity that's not just about racially segregated communities, but it's about our whole community, our, our nation, then I think we're in really big trouble. Mm, wonderful. Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate it. 
And uh, so we're we're at the end here, and I I uh, want to take a moment to thank you again for uh, joining us. I know it's a busy time of year for you. Uh, really appreciate you being on the show. Um, to our audience, um, thank you for listening in. Uh, invite you to uh, join us again next month. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Jason Grissom, uh, who is a professor of public policy and education at Vanderbilt. Um, who is going to come on and talk to us a little bit about the work that he's done and the research on how race and gender composition um, in the workforce actually uh, uh, influence the distribution of resources and outcomes in K-12 um, educational settings. So um, that should also be a good follow-up uh, to this conversation. Uh, so um, until next time, uh, we uh, ask you to go well and stay well. Thanks again, Amy, uh, for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having me.